0: The following resource is from LMPC.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1, 6, and 7. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'll add my welcome uh, to that of John's. My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're glad that you're all here this day to worship the Lord, whether you're watching by live stream or uh, in the lobby uh, or in the Sunday school classroom down the hall. We're glad that you're here. And uh, before we dive into this passage, though, uh, let's pause and ask God's blessing on his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we begin by just confessing that uh, as wonderful as your word is and as helpful as it is for our growth in grace, uh, we do neglect it, Lord. We do not uh, hold it as high as we should. We do not uh, study it as much as we should, but we're so thankful, thankful for it, thankful for the way you use it, thankful for the chance we have uh, to gather and worship this morning and to hear from your word. Uh, We do, Lord, so much pray that your spirit would be at work in each heart, each of our hearts this morning, Lord, that we would uh, do so much more than just hear the words of a pastor, but instead, Lord, we would hear your spirit speaking to our spirits and that you really would uh, use your word, Lord, to grow us in grace, to deepen us in our sanctification and our love for you and in our understanding of who you are and all that you've done for us. That through the miracle of your grace, folks like us might live lives that actually bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, last Sunday, uh, we started, we returned to our series in Deuteronomy uh, by going back to chapter 5 here and looking at the beginning of chapter 5 where Moses again delivers the Ten Commandments uh, to the people of Israel who are standing on the edge of the Promised Land, Uh, preparing to enter and we started last week uh, by looking at the context specifically at verse 6 verse 6 God said I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and we saw that verse is packed with significance not just for the Israelites but for us also We wanted to make absolutely certain that we understood the context in which God graciously gave the law to his people. He was reminding the Israelites of who he was. He was reminding the Israelites of what he'd already done for them. Reminding them that he is the Lord, the only God. As we were reading through the catechism, uh, you saw that just a few minutes ago several times, if I can find it here. Uh, glorifying him as the true God and our God. He's reminding them that he is the true, the only God, the living God, and also their God. But he's also reminding them that he's their rescuer. He's their redeemer. We saw last week that the law was given to an already rescued people. And that's significant. The rescue came first. The redemption from slavery came first. Then the law was given. You might even put it this way, that the Ten Commandments, they don't begin with the law. They begin with grace. They begin with the gospel of undeserved forgiveness and undeserved deliverance. I love the the fact that God didn't come to Israel and say, you've been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. Now, I'm going to give you these commands, and, and you keep these for a few hundred years, and then we'll talk about your deliverance. He didn't do that. He came to a helpless people, a hopeless people, a people bound in slavery and he rescued them. He rescued them based on no merit of their own and he gave them these commandments by which they were to live and remain free. He's not giving us the commandments to say, man, these are great blessings in your life but I'm not gonna let you have them. It's clearly a picture of what God's done for us. As we, as we gather to start looking at the Ten Commandments, starting with this first one, we gather knowing that he's rescued us. If you are in Christ this morning, if you're trusting in Christ, he has already rescued us from slavery and bondage to our sin. And he's graciously given us his word that we might live according to it and live a life that remains free. You could even say the Ten Commandments are a freedom charter. For an already delivered people. I was thinking this week uh, about Paul in, in Galatians. Paul speaks in Galatians about the yoke of improperly using the law, using it as, as a measure of our personal righteousness based on how we're doing with the law, or using it as a measure of our acceptance before God if we feel like we're keeping it pretty well, then we're pretty acceptable before God. He talks about the misuse of the law like that rather than showing us and pointing us to our need for a savior, rather than showing us how we're to live now that we've been freed from our sin, how we're to live in a way that we, that people like us might actually live lives that bring glory to God. And so this week, with that introduction, we come to the very first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. And if you look at your outline, this is how we're going to approach it. We're going to first of all see that it is the greatest commandment. And then also that it is the most frequently broken commandment. And lastly, we'll look at our only cure, the only cure for our continually breaking it. So first, the greatest commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God's showing us in that very first commandment, he's showing us that he is a God who will not share his glory with another. He's rightly commanding us as his followers to worship him exclusively for he alone is worthy of our worship. As a a parent and, and now as a grandparent, I was thinking this past week about the the early lessons we try to teach our children. As parents, we try to teach our children how to share, right? That is not an easy thing to do. It's quite a struggle to learn to share, but as important as it is to teach our children uh, the value of sharing, the importance of sharing, it's also important that they realize some things are not meant to be shared, right? Pacifiers are not meant to be shared, I have a 16-month-old grandson who likes to share his with me. (laughs) Toothbrushes are not meant to be shared. And our children, they grow up a little bit, and we want to teach them other things are not meant to be shared, like information that's shared with us in confidence is not to be shared elsewhere. Answers to tests are not to be shared. The emotional and physical love reserved for a husband and wife is not to be shared. Here's the bottom line, in order to use things properly, some things must be kept exclusive. And if that's true, if some things are not meant to be shared, then it shouldn't surprise us that the sovereign creator God who has redeemed us refuses to share some things. Think about this for a minute. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. The the sinful, idolatrous people that he's speaking to here uh, in Deuteronomy, they're the same as us. He's already rescued us at the enormous cost of the life of his son. He's lavished his love on us, his grace on us, his blessings on us. And because of who he is, because of what he's done, there's some things he won't share. And the primary thing is he won't share his glory. He won't share the worship that's due him. It's not good for us. So the very first commandment he gives is you shall have no other gods before me. That's a fundamental commandment. It's the fundamental commandment. It's the one that comes before all the others. It's the one really that's the foundation of the rest of the commandments. And as it's been said, if we've broken any of the other commandments, we've already broken this one first. Something or someone has functionally taken place of God in our lives. God doesn't simply claim part of our lives as his, part of our worship as his. He doesn't do that. He says, in response to who I am, I am the Lord, your God. In response to what I've done in rescuing you, he requires that we dedicate, not just part of what we are, not just part of what we have, but all that we are and all that we have to his service and his glory and his praise. The catechism, uh, question one in the catechism, man's chief end, right? What is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to? Yeah. The answer is simple. Our job is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But one of the questions that arises is, what gives God the right to make such a demand? And the answer is pretty simple, he alone is God. He alone is worthy. For the next few weeks in worship, we were talking about it uh, this past Monday, we're gonna put the catechism, the shorter catechism questions in, and we're gonna affirm what we believe about each of the 10 Commandments. And I trust it will be very helpful I was uh, listening to Will's sermon a couple of weeks ago, and, and we, were, we were surprised that, uh, that so many people, so many Christians can't tell you what the Ten Commandments are, but we can tell you what the ingredients to a Big Mac are. It's true, isn't it? So we're going to work our way through them every week. That'll be beneficial to us, but so is the shorter catechism, I mean, me, so is the children's catechism. I was thinking about the children's catechism this past week and about how important it is. And some of us, we taught our children this. Some of us were taught this as children. Let's see how we do on this. Who made you? There we go. What else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? How can you glorify God? And lastly, why are you to glorify God? Excellent. Those are great truths not only to teach our children but to remind ourselves of. He made us. He takes care of us. That's why we're to glorify Him. He's asserting here in this first command His rightful claim to our worship and to our allegiance. He's the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer of our souls. I love uh, the hymn writer Henry Light wrote some great hymns and one of them is is, uh, very familiar to you. It's called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. To his feet your tribute bring. The next line, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing? It's the greatest commandment we're rightly commanded to worship the Lord exclusively. But it's also, secondly, the most broken commandment, the most frequently broken commandment because we perpetually pursue idols that never satisfy. It's important to remember, again, the context here. Israel lived in a culture saturated with idolatry. The Egyptians were unsurpassed in their culture Uh, with idols with their polytheism with their worship of many idols they had the gods of fields and rivers the gods of light and darkness the guys of the the gods of the sun and the moon love and war planting and harvest it goes on and on they had all these gods and the Egyptian culture had far more impact on the Israelites than the Israelites had on the Egyptian culture And the one who redeemed them from slavery from the Egyptians says to them, you shall have no other gods before me. So in a sense, this commandment involves a choice. In a sense, it involves a conscious choice. God's not saying simply this. He's not saying it's okay to worship other gods just so long as I'm number one in the pecking order. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can have as many gods as you want as long as I'm at the top of your list. He's not talking about where he falls in the rankings. He's saying you shall have no other gods instead of me, alongside of me, or in addition to me. I will not accept divided loyalties among my people. That's what he's saying. I want single-hearted, single-minded devotion and love and service it's what's best for us when jesus was asked about the greatest commandment do you remember his response love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and again that may beg the question if the bible teaches that there really are no other gods if if no other gods really exist then why does god give us this command and the answer is that even false gods, gods that we choose and that we make on our own, they hold a kind of power over their worshipers. That's the nature of idolatry. I was thinking we ought to pause and define idolatry. And as I love to do sometimes, I, I looked up in Webster's uh, to see just like, what does Webster say? Uh, how does it define idolatry? And it gives us three definitions. The primary one is this, a representation of deity Used as an object of worship. We're like, yep, that's how we tend to think of it. Secondly, a false god. And thirdly, an object of passionate devotion. We're getting closer there, aren't we? Put those three together. But idolatry to us, in our culture, idolatry is basically an unused word. We tend to think of idolatry as just about people literally bowing down to man-made idols, to real physical idols. But the Bible speaks of idolatry much differently than that. This is what the Lord says to Ezekiel, to the prophet Ezekiel, about the nation of Israel and about their problems with idols. And if you're taking notes, this is worth writing down. It's Ezekiel 14, verse 3. Listen to what he says. God says to Ezekiel, these people have set up idols in their hearts. He didn't say on their shelves, in their hearts. So it's not so much in the Bible, it's not so much about bowing down to physical idols. It's broader than that. As one writer said, idols are more in the self than they are on the shelf. What what God's saying to Ezekiel is, these people abandoning the living God, the problem is not simply a matter of idols fashioned by human hands. The matter is really got something to do first and foremost with something going on in their hearts. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism uh, says about idolatry. It says, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one places their trust other than the one true God. I think that's helpful too. But the point is, the Bible internalizes the problem of idolatry. This is, this is how Paul does it uh, when Paul's describing it in Ephesians 5, verse 5. Paul says, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, and then parentheses, such man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. What he's saying is the root sin under immorality and impurity and greed is idolatry. And he says it again in Colossians 3, uh, verse five, he says, put together, uh, excuse me, put therefore to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and he gives another list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He's saying the root under all those sins is, is an idol of our hearts. Two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I think it was upstairs when we were, uh, when I was preaching, we talked about this this, uh, translation, evil desires, that the word literally is over desires. Epithumia is a Greek word meaning over desires. They're not necessarily evil in and of themselves. Something in our hearts that we want them too much, we over want them, makes them evil. I love what, Calvin said about that, he had just masterful insight into the heart, into the human heart. He says this about evil desires, and I've, I've quoted this off and on for years. He says, the evil in our desires lies not so much in the things we desire as it does in the fact that we desire them far too much. Think about that for a minute. The evil in our desires lies not so much in the things we desire as it does in the fact that we desire them far too much. Think about it, I, I, my desires. like, an evil desire would be I wanna be the meth king of Chattanooga, right? That'd be an evil desire. But what's wrong with wanting our spouses to love us? What's wrong with wanting my children to turn out to be delightful that you would enjoy being with them? What's, wanting, what's wrong with wanting things to go well at work today? What's wrong with wanting to be productive at work? What's wrong with wanting to be accepted by a certain group of people? Well, the answer to that is nothing necessarily is wrong with that. But if I get anxious because I can't have it, if I get depressed or if I start manipulating in order to get it or controlling or being irritable in order to get it, then it's become an over-desire. It's become an evil desire, a desire that's taken over my heart. So let's ask ourselves, as before we move on to the next, let's ask ourselves, are we seeking, first of all, are we seeking to have God as first among many gods in our lives, or are we seeking really to worship and serve and glorify him alone? Start there. And then, are there things in our lives, maybe even good things, that we are over-desiring? Years ago, and I don't even know how many years ago, maybe 20 plus, I put together a handout for a Sunday school class on identifying idols of our hearts, Uh, and it came partially from the old Sonship material and partially from a Redeemer um, uh, material uh, on, on Romans And I actually brought copies. I just left them here in case anybody wants to get them afterwards. But it lists things. It says, life only has meaning. I only have worth if, and then it just lists some things and tells you what idol. Like if I'm loved and respected by so-and-so. That's an approval idol. Life only has meaning. I only have worth. Ooh, I hate this one. If I'm highly productive getting a lot done. Struggle with that one. That's a productivity idol. Life only has meaning, I only have purpose. If I'm being recognized for my accomplishments, if I'm excelling in my career, that's an achievement idol. We can make idols out of many things that are actually good things in and of themselves, but when our hearts attach to them and have to have them for life to be okay, we're in effect raising up other gods. Are we wholly devoting ourselves, our lives to him or only partially? I was thinking this week, you know, is our basic Christian life this, that we're, we're happy, Lord, to give you Sunday mornings. We'll give you an hour on Sunday mornings. We'll even give you two with Sunday school. But the rest of the week's mine to do with what I want and to live the way I want to live. Lord, you can have the tithe, but the rest is mine to do with as I please. I was actually reading on tithing this week. I got a little distracted in reading different articles on tithing. And and many Christians have even redefined the word. The word means a tenth. That's That's what the Hebrew word means. They've redefined it to be anything I decide to give. Any amount, anything I decide to give counts as my tithe, as my full tithe. They've redefined it. The average evangelical Christian, evangelical Christian gives two and a half percent of their income to deductible things. God's commanding us here. He's saying, I want you to love me with undivided hearts. It is what he deserves, but it's best for us. And if we all know our hearts, we know we all have little gods, little idols that compete for the worship of God. I love the way Tim Keller put it, Uh, When I first heard this this sentence, I was like, what is he talking about? He was writing about idols, and he said this, we are co-conspirators in our own kidnapping. (laughs) Like, I, I don't understand that at all. But here's what he meant by it. If someone comes and tries to help us, tries to point out our idols, and help us to identify them and wrestle with them, we don't react well, do we? We refuse to admit our hearts are inappropriately attached to something and we go into self-defense mode instantly. That's what he means, we're co-conspirators in our own kidnapping, our hearts, we're co-conspirators. But here in this commandment, God begins with the first commandment seeking to liberate us with the most freeing of all commandments. You're to have no other gods before me. One more thing and then we'll move on. John Donne Donne was an early 17th century English poet. He was an Anglican dean of St. Paul's and he wrote a famous sonnet entitled Batter My Heart, Three-Person to God. Some of y'all may have heard of that. There's a great line in that, two lines in that sonnet that are great. He says this. He says, take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free. Let me say it again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free. That's what this commandment's really about. It's about the undivided love and loyalty that God requires of an already redeemed people, a loyalty that comes from being enthralled with him. That leads us to our our last point. We've seen the greatest commandment, the most frequently broken commandment, and thirdly, the only cure for our idolatrous hearts. 500 years ago, John Calvin said this about the human heart. He said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We just just crank them out. My... uh, Uh, my illustration from going through Sonship 30 years ago or whatever that was, was that that Chuck E. Cheese game, Whack-A-Mole. You know that one? That place we say the bad people go when they die, they go to eternal Chuck E. Cheese. The Whack-A-Mole, you have this hammer and these these moles hop up and you have to whack them. That's what our hearts are like with idols. We just invent new ones constantly. G.K. Chesterton, that was 500 years ago. 100 years ago, Chesterton, a a British author and and believer pointed out, he said this, when we cease to worship the one true God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. He's right. How can we be delivered from that though? And the only answer is this, we need in our hearts the expulsive power, as Chalmers said, the expulsive power of a new affection. We need to fall passionately and deeply in love with God as he's revealed to us in Christ. He's the only one that can rescue us. We can't rescue ourselves. He's the only one who perfectly kept the commandment for us. I was thinking this week about the Apostle Paul a lot. Paul wrote in Romans 7, it's a great passage. Some people go, well, that was Paul before he was converted, but we know it's not. This is the Christian life. Paul in Romans 7 He's recognizing that he's not able to do what he wants to do and he keeps on doing what he doesn't want to do and he goes on wrestling with that. You know the passage I'm talking about? Like, what's wrong with me? I keep doing this. I don't want to do that. I know I should do this and I can't do the good I want to do. He ends that section saying, recognizing, he says, what a wretched man I am. And then he asks this question, who will rescue me? And then he answers it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ rescues us. A a deepening, uh, uh, growing, vital relationship with Jesus is the only hope we have for freeing our hearts from the idols that imprison them, for enabling us to set our affections on God alone. I'll end with this. Thomas Chalmers, It says in your outline, because I know it's hard to be read to a a long quote like this, but Thomas Chalmers was a great Scottish pastor uh, upon whose death it is said half of Edinburgh came to his funeral. Not quite sure that's right, but he was a very popular and powerful preacher. He wrote a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is what he says. This is on the bottom of your outline page. He says, there are two ways... In which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. And here they are. First, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy of it. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. And then he says this, my purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. From the, and the latter method alone will suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart From the wrong affections that domineer over it. Chalmers is saying the same thing the Apostle Paul said. He's saying this: He's saying, You and I, we cannot extricate our hearts, our hearts' affections, from the idols that enslave them simply by an act of the will, simply by withdrawing our hearts' affections, saying, Nope, that shouldn't be so important. We can't do that. We're not powerful enough to do that. The only cure is to set before our hearts something more lovely more beautiful, more worthy, and that is Christ alone. May our God graciously work in our hearts, even this day and this week, to that end. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your enduring covenantal commitment to us that You will finish the good work you've started in our hearts. Lord, like the Apostle Paul, we confess that we struggle in our faith, often doing the very things we don't want to do and not doing the things we know we should do. We cling to our idols, hoping they'll deliver what they promise, but they never do. Hoping they'll bring the soul-level satisfaction that we lack, but they never do. Lord, you tell us in your word that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, and we know this to be true. We ask that you would teach us to look to you as our rescuer and our redeemer for the grace that we might follow you more faithfully. You're the one, Lord, who brought us out of bondage through the mighty and finished work of your son, Jesus, and As we spend these next few weeks, Lord, studying the beauty and the perfection of your law, we ask that you would captivate our hearts once again. We thank you, Lord, that you gave your law on Sinai to an already rescued and already delivered people. And we pray that as we study these things, you would keep us from the temptation of believing that somehow we're delivered or somehow we're accepted based on our keeping of the law. Instead, Lord, we ask that you would secure our hearts even more deeply in your gracious work that sets us free that we might keep your law as a way of wisdom and a way of life. We ask all of this in the precious and saving name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.